This episode of The Backdrop, Untold Stories in Golf, is brought to you by New Club Golf Society, a humble community of golfers connected by our love for the game. Follow us on social media with the handle New Club Golf. Glad to uh, have you back in, in such short order. Um, people really enjoyed the 98 Masters uh, rundown with some behind-the-scenes look on you know, that event. And... Uh, and so we wanted to keep it rolling. We wanted to keep it rolling with the other selection you made for a kind of overlooked yet really entertaining Masters. I mean, that's the point of doing this, right, is we're trying to give people with no golf on TV, no sports on TV. We want to give people something entertaining uh, to watch on the couch this Saturday, this Sunday, you know, during the week to, to really uh, feed the golfing soul, if you will. So um, – <laughs> Thanks for doing it. Thanks for filling us uh, in on, on all your wealth of, of knowledge and info. Uh, what do we have up next? What was the next uh, the next decade you selected? What, what was the tournament you wanted to go with? Uh, 2011 Masters. I think that was a day that – that Sunday was pretty crazy. I mean, they had eight different leaders at one point. Um, the lead changed that many times. They kind of had a little bit of an obscure winner at the time, Charles Schwartzel. I think he's more well known now, but uh, he only he was only the third South African to ever win the Masters. Uh, Trevor Immelman did it in 2008, and then Gary Player did it three separate times. Um, so it was a pretty you know sentimental thing for him, and and you know for him to win the way he did. I mean, he he birdied the last four holes uh, to win. He no player had ever done that before in the history of the tournament. Um, he holed out twice that day, which I think a lot of people forget about or don't realize. I mean, it, it was kind of his day to begin with. And, um, you know, it was just a, a lot of different storylines. I mean, Roy McIlroy was 21 years old at the time. He was trying to become the second youngest player to win. He had a four-shot lead after, you know, he he was the 54-hole leader, obviously, led every day going into Sunday. Um and then, you know, you had Tiger post-fire hydrant. He was in the mix. He started seven shots behind the lead and, um, you know, was six under making the turn. Going into the back nine, um, you had Jason Day, Jeff Ogilvy. I mean, three Australians right there that were trying to become the first Aussie to win the tournament. I mean, just a ton of different guys that, um, you know, once Rory kind of started collapsing there, everybody was kind of let back in. Yeah, this this thing's got it all. I mean, so so obviously uh, I rewatched it, you know, in prep for our, our discussion. I will chip in for Sunday primarily. Um, I do have some recollection of the year 2011 and what was going on in the golf world and the, in the world in general. But, uh, you know, I, I took some notes uh, of everything. And what was really entertaining for me this go around is my uh, my wife was she didn't see me started, but she's probably an hour in to the telecast she was like oh golf's on i go no this is actually 2011 can't you tell by the terrible fashion uh of each player but but we, she she watched it with me and she had no idea who the winner was right and so what was yeah. so funny was i was asking her you know each each hole like who, who you think has this thing and, and she was d- begging me to tell her who won and i just refused and so she actually got to watch it so i was sitting next to someone that was watching for the first time and I'm telling you, dude, this is so entertaining. It is the adrenaline open is what it should be re- renamed because everybody everybody has a chance at this one, like everybody. And it, and it is action-packed golf. So uh, this was a really sneaky pick for me. When I, when I saw you picked it, I was like, Charles Schwartzel, really? Are we going to talk about, about him? But you're, you're right, man. Everything you just mentioned is, is really, really fun. So 
take take us back to 2011. What was going on maybe prior to the tournament, if you can? Or um, you mentioned Tiger. You know, I, I guess the, the, the hydrant situation. What year was that? What what uh, you know? He's in that fallout. So maybe take us back to that time. Yeah. So you know, Thanksgiving night, 2009, kind of the whole really the whole sports world, not even the golf world. I mean, kind of changed and, uh, you know, Tiger, obviously uh, everything that, you know, happened personally with him was revealed. And, uh, you know, he, you know, obviously, and then he went to rehab and then he made his return to golf in 2010 at the masters and finished tied for fourth there when, you know, he hadn't played competitive golf in like six or seven months. And after his personal life was completely ruined and he tied for fourth and, (laughs) and then told Bill McAtee at the, you know, standing off the 18th green that he should have won the tournament and because he, he had a Band-Aid swing and uh, that he was shocked that he, you know, wasn't going to be the, the winner and that he – and they – or sorry, it was Peter Costas and Peter Costas asked him if he, you know, measured this tournament differently than any other and he said, no, I'm here to win and then walked away. So it's kind of like, okay, he hasn't really changed. <laughs> but, uh, but then going to 2011, I mean, Tiger was kind of making some changes. Um, you know, he – decided to part ways. Well, Hank Haney left him as his, uh, as his swing coach. And so he decided to start working with Sean Foley and Sean Foley was kind of, you know, completely changed the look of Tiger's golf swing. I think, you know, Hank and Butch had a lot of similar ideas with Tiger. Um, if you watch 2000 Tiger Woods swing in 2005, 2006 Tiger Woods, uh, there aren't a, there are changes, but it's nothing drastic. I think Hank made Tiger a much more consistent player, if you can say. Um, if you just look at his record, Tiger has a higher percentage of, you know, top tens. He has actually a higher winning percent, percentage with Hank. Um, you know, with Hank, he won six majors. With Butch, he won eight. But, and, you know, Butch, he was obviously probably more dominant just – you know, he won 12 by 12 at the 97 Masters, won by 15 at the 2000 U.S. Open, won by eight, the 2000 British. I mean, Tiger never really had runaway major championship victories with Hank. But I think, you know, Tiger Tiger says that his best ball striking days were really in those mid 2000s. Um, so and that's when he started working with Hank Haney. So going with Foley, Foley was completely different than how. Uh, Butch and Hank taught. They're more old school. Sean Foley's more of today's technology track, man. Um, you know, he talks about like biomechanics and stuff that I don't know anything about, but he was very, very technical. And, um, you know, Steve Williams talks about how he, he didn't want Tiger to go with Sean Foley. He felt like Tiger was you know good enough at that point, knew enough about the swing to kind of just do it on his own. Didn't need a coach. Didn't need a coach. Um, kind of knew how to fix himself. And, you know, Tiger was very adamant about trying to find somebody else to work with. And um, this was kind of, this Masters was one of the last tournaments that Tiger and Stevie worked together. Um, Stevie, obviously, he left Tiger in the summer of 2011 and started working for Adam Scott. And um, and then Tiger started working with uh, Joey LaCava at the end of 2011 in the fall. But, uh, yeah, so Tiger kind of starting to have kind of a new team surround him and, um, you know, just kind of beginning his new swing changes with Foley and, um, you know, hadn't done anything leading up to the Masters that would think that he would be competing. But uh, all of a sudden, you know, his – it's almost like at Augusta, he doesn't even have to be playing that well. It's just the fact that he knows the golf course so well. He knows where to hit it that he can – he's always kind of popping up. So that info on on Tiger, 
gives a lot of background before you watch the telecast because I was watching and it looked like a different tiger. Um, not just his swing, but like he was a bit of a whiny teenager. <laughs> he kept yelling at his ball. Him and Stevie had this very content, just tense dynamic watching on the telecast. And I'm no psychologist, but I think you could tell that he was personally going through some some changes, some big things. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, he shoots five under on the front nine going into the back nine on Sunday, and he's now he's right in it. I mean, he he gets to ten under par. I mean, it looks like he's he's tied for the lead going into the going into the back nine, and um, you know, I mean, he, he started six shots back of McElroy to start the day, so I mean, he wasn't even in the conversation really. I mean, he pretty much shot himself out of it uh, on Saturday with a seventy four, and. Um, you know, if you watch his just his entire demeanor, like you said, I mean, he he looks so uncomfortable. I mean, he's five hundred par on the front nine, and he his swing looks terrible. I mean, the changes <laughs> that he made with Foley were just disgusting. I mean, it, it's it's no wonder why he had so many injury problems. I think, I mean, just you can tell how much stress his swing was putting on his back. I mean, he it was just such an unconventional move for him. And uh, I had I and, had the same note down, Peter, and and he was going at it so hard. Which yeah. the combination of, of the, the how aggressively he was swinging at it, it looked like he was full blast every single swing, and then just the 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 shape of it, it did look it looked like you're saying uncomfortable. Yet he is sticking every single shot. Did you notice that? I mean, he was a, it was a stripe show. Yeah, that's what was unbelievable. I think he was honestly like he was surprised himself. I think, and I think knew he knew going into the day how poorly he was playing. I think um, Saturday, you know, he shot two over. He pretty much was out of it at that point. And I think he knew that you know it, his game was not going to hold up. And I think it's kind of one of those things where it's like he, you're not expecting to play well. You don't warm up well, and then all of a sudden you get on the golf course, and instead of him kind of having the mentality of, okay, let's see how far we can take it. His was more like, let's not blow up here. Let's like try to, you know, let's try to, you know, push the, push the brakes a little bit and see if we can, you know, control it. Cause he knew going to the back nine that he still wasn't, I mean, he just looked uncomfortable when that was the biggest thing. I mean, he, and he, uh, you know, he Eagles eight, he hits an unbelievable three, but he, like you said, he birdies, uh, he birdies six, seven, and then he Eagles eight. He's four under through those three holes. And it just – it was like a weird vibe when he went to the ninth. He was still like he's – you just felt like he still wasn't going to win. I mean, I remember – I mean, this was nine years ago, but I remember when he walked to the back nine, he was tied for the lead, and my mom's like, he's not going to win. You know, and I was – you know, I was 16 at the time, 15 at the time, and, you know, I still didn't completely understand what happened with him and everything. I think, you know, women were not really on Tiger's side at that moment so i think you know my mom was like he's not gonna win he's he just doesn't look comfortable and i think that was you know we can start getting into you know rory and everything but uh tiger at that point in his career i think it was evident to a lot of people that he may never win another major again a lot of people thought though even then even after 09 you know people still were saying that uh, or who else do we need backstory on for this to make it really interesting? Because you got your job here is very difficult because you have so many players in the mix. Yeah, I mean, there's a ton of guys. I mean, yeah, Jason Day at that point, he was 24 years old. He was kind of an he was known in the golf circles, but he wasn't 
he had done, you know, he wasn't number one player in the world yet. He didn't have really his, you know, breakout. He had a victory um, on the PGA Tour, but he only had one, and he hadn't really shown the consistency yet. And um, But he was somebody who he started playing well kind of all week. I mean, he he shot 72 on Saturday – or, sorry, on Friday, but then he shoots 64 on, uh, on Friday to kind of get right back into the hunt of things. And um, I think, you know, he's somebody that – probably leaving that tournament on Sunday, you probably felt like he could win there two or three times when I mean, he's, cause he kind of had everything. He had the entire package. I mean, he was a great driver of the golf ball. He was a good iron player. He was a good putter. He had a phenomenal short game. I mean, it was kind of like, you know, this guy, he's 24 years old. He didn't really feel the pressure on Sunday, especially when he started getting into the mix of it, like Rory did. Um, and I think that was something that a lot of people saw kind of his composure. I mean, he shoots 68, four under on, on uh, Sunday to get to 12 under and, you know, he ties for second with his fellow countryman, Adam Scott. It was his first masters and, you know, he finishes tied for second, you know, and he missed 2012 masters due to injury. So he had played in the tournament twice and he had two tied for seconds. I think people definitely thought that that was a golf course that was going to suit him. Um, And then, you know, going to Rory, you know, at that time he was 21. He had a PGA tour victory at the 2010 quail hollow championship. And, I think, you know, a lot of people looked at him and Anthony Kim as kind of the two young guys that were going to really um, have, a, you know, an impact on the game. Um, I think those were the two guys that everybody, if you talked about who on a talent level was comparative to Tiger, I think those were the two guys that people would say, um, just the way that they hit the ball, the way that they didn't really have any deficiencies in the game, uh, their competitiveness, especially with AK. Um, I think it was evident with him that he was on a level with Tiger, maybe even more so than Rory, just in terms of his mental toughness and the way that he, you know, kind of treated the game. With Rory, it just seemed like he was more happy-go-lucky, that nothing really bothered him. He was very laid back. Um, and he had that golf swing that everybody envied. And um, I think that was kind of – he was he was almost more comparative to, like, like a Freddie Couples demeanor, just very, you know, easygoing. Um, but then, you know, Rory goes out to begin, you know, to begin this Masters and just in gangbusters. I mean, he, you know, like I said at the start of the podcast, I mean, he was he was a leader each day at the end of the round. Um, you know, he goes 65, 69, uh, 70. I mean, he's, you know, at 12 under par already going into Sunday. And I, you know, I remember, you know, he's a four-shot lead over Anel Cabrera, KJ Choi, Jason Day, and Charles Schwartzel. And I just remember that night, that Saturday night, people, you know, feeling like he was going to – this was going to be like a Tiger Woods 97 kind of coming out party for him. And he was going to win by seven or eight shots. He was going to play great on Sunday. And this was going to be kind of the new coronation of this new era. And uh, that is not what happened. <laughs> it's, it's not at all at all, at all what happened. And – you know, for our Rory fans that, that watch this one and tune in, it's it, it's painful to watch. You know, a young guy who is obviously succumbing to the pressure of his biggest moment in golf, and um, it's it's tough from that perspective. But you, I, I come out of it an even bigger Rory fan. You know, because he carries himself well. You can tell he's. He's definitely flustered, but he he kept fighting and and there's a moment where he sticks it on 
you know, and we'll get, I know you'll get to the details of his bluster on 10, but when he sticks it on 11, where I don't think I've ever been pulling, I mean, this isn't even live and I've never been pulling for a guy more because he's like a little red faced after 10. He, he just sticks it and you're like, let's go. Like, who knows? Maybe he can like birdies, you know, but uh, yeah, man, from that perspective, it's fascinating. Well, and then he, he hits an unbelievable shot on 12. He hits it to like eight feet. He's just coming off triple bogey on 10 and 11. He's been, he's four over par now through two holes on the back nine. And he hits it to like eight feet on that Sunday pin on 12. And he makes double four putts from eight feet. And that was when it was like, wow. I mean, he's collapsed. I mean, this is like an epic collapse. Um, Cause I mean, yeah, I, that tee shot that he hit on 10 on Sunday was, I mean, I don't think I've, I mean, we haven't, there's been nobody <laughs> that far left ever in the history of that tournament. I mean, he was in the cabins. I mean, I, that, <laughs> how that's, first of all, how that's not out of bounds. I don't even know how he was able to play that ball, but he was in somebody who was literally in, he was in a backyard. He was in a backyard. <laughs> I mean, let's go to it. Cause we're already talking about it. It is the, one of the worst drives of all time, right? Of televised you know, final round play. That one swing has got to be the worst. And he's in the lead. That's what he still has the lead. I mean, he, he shot one over on the front nine. He didn't look comfortable the entire entire front nine, but he's still got a one shot lead at that point. He's, he's at eleven under, and um, you know, and he had just he had birdied that he birdied seven. He had a great second shot on seven and made a really good putt. And um, so it kind of looked like he was kind of starting to weather the storm a little. He hit it to like ten feet on nine and missed it, um, but he looked you know calm enough where. Now it's, you know, it's a lot closer than what people thought it was, but he still got the lead. And uh, then on set, I mean, first of all, on 10, for as long as he hits it, he has no business hitting driver. Right. Um, he was leading the field in driving distance all week. And he, you yeah, know, guys half his length are, are hitting three woods. Hitting three woods. Yeah. I mean, nobody really hits driver on that. With the new technology, nobody really hits driver on that hole anymore. Everybody hits three wood and all you got to do is hit just kind of a, going draw to get it down that hill and you're going to have six or seven iron in. And for some reason he hits, he hits driver trying to hit a hook. And he, I mean, he hits this thing literally, I mean, it was a snap hook. He said he's never hit driver on that hole since even in practice rounds. He said he's never done it since then. I mean, I, wow. that tells you how scarring it is, but. Wow. You know, early, early in the round, I, I did notice he had this, uh, you know, when I play competitively and I get a little anxious, I, I get this little pull going and it really like my legs stop moving. My hips don't release. And I just, my arms carry that like fraction more down the left. And he was missing long left, which is very concerning when you're leading, you know, the masters. And, and I could, I kept watching that. Like, okay, I know that move very well. He is, he's, he's nervous. You know, his body is not taking care of the full swing. He's, you could just, you could see it. And then, on that swing, on 10, his whole lower body just freezes. And his hands turn over, and it's a snap hook, man. And, and like, think about that. 2011, we're still playing with 460 cc's of club head. Like, this isn't, you know, a little persimmon that occasionally pros would, you know, hook, <laughs> hit that little snappy. This is hitting a snap hook right. with modern equipment, and your name is Rory McIlroy. Right. Like, and and we'll move off this because it's there's plenty of other stuff to talk about, but it's just fascinating and, and you, you, your, your heart really did go out to the guy. Like it's totally understandable. You're leading the masters. You're 21 years old. 
Right. I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, in the way he handled it, like you said, I mean, he, he just blamed it all on himself. He said, I just, you know, it's just, it's, it was a tough day. And it obviously was, but what, what I'm so confused about is like, I want to talk to somebody about how that is not out of bounds. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. how, how was he allowed to play that shot? I mean, I don't even, even honestly, looked, that shows you that the, they probably didn't even think that that was ever in play. So they just never marked it, obviously. Totally. And he, after he hits it, he looks to the, you know, walking score with them. He's like, that's out of bounds, right? Yeah. He didn't even ask. He's like, I think he's just like, yeah, that's that's clearly not the golf course. <laughs> the walking officials kind of like, no, you're good. And he, I think he, I think that's what killed him too, is because he ends up making triple. He probably could have easily saved. Not bogey would have been tough, but he could have easily made just double if he had had to re-tee. I think that triple was a killer. I mean, if he makes double, right. he makes double. He falls to nine under. He's only two shots back of the lead at that point. I right. think that's what triple bogey. You got to take seven out of play after that. Yeah, because his chip out had to keep him on top of the hill. He couldn't even catch the the base of it to take. Well, then he hits, and then he hits three wood. That's what was the killer is that he's still trying to get to the green at that point. As you, and that shows you his caddy JP. He he just had, and it's funny because he was a guy. He caddied for Darren Clark. He caddied for Ernie Els. He caddied for different big time players like that. And I think it was very evident in that moment the reason why he was fired by all those guys is because he had no you know balls to kind of back Rory off at that point. I mean, he was, he's letting him hit driver on 10. He's letting him hit three wood with his third shot. I mean, at that point, it's like, hey, let's let's take triple – let's take the biggest number possible out of play. You're hitting three out of the fairway. Let's try to make bogey. If you make six, you make six. You hit a terrible tee shot. But at this point, I mean, he's got 250 in with his third. I mean, hit three iron short of the green, chip up, and try to make bogey. I mean, yeah. what he's doing, trying to hit three wood, trying to hit the hero shot. Then he snap hooks that one into the trees. And that, after that, I mean, he could have, he, he looked like he was going to go for a million on that hole. I mean, he was, he was done after the 10th hole. It didn't matter what his mindset was after that point. Yeah. Yeah. It's the only time you can probably see Rory McIlroy look like the rest of us is the 10th hole in that final round. Um, <laughs> I hope when he does win that they rename one of those cabins, you know, the McElroy cabin. That would be that'd be a class move by the master Augusta. I don't National think he'll Master. ever win. Wow, really? I don't think he'll ever win that tournament. So why do you say that? His game is too much scar tissue. In the world. Yeah. Too much scar yeah. tissue. I think too much too many bad memories. Um he's had chances there after that. You know, he was in the final group with uh, Patrick Reed in 2018, and he played terrible. He shot two over. I mean, you know, in a, on a day that people thought that, you know, Patrick wasn't going to kind of have it, um, that it was, everybody was picking Rory. Even Rory was kind of throwing the gauntlet down on Saturday night to Patrick Reed, like, hey, I'm going for something bigger than Patrick. Uh, Patrick's never been in this position. I've been in this position. And then he goes out and completely lays an egg. And um, I think that course, it sets up perfectly for him. Um, I just don't think he'll ever do it. I really don't. I think it's, you know, it, there's been tons of guys in the history of this tournament that we've been like, oh, he's Ernie Els, David Duvall, Tom Weiskopf, Curtis Strange, um, just guys that you've always said, oh, he'll, that course is perfect for him. He's going to win the tournament. And he'll, he'll win it at some point in his career, and they just never did. And I think he's going to be a guy who's going to go down in history as somebody who, that course sits up perfectly for him. He's had a lot of close calls, but he's never going to win it. 
Wow. Yeah. I mean, he, and, and his, his Sunday challenges are so well documented right now, even though he is playing better than anybody. And, you know, he has wins under his belt, PJ tour wins. And uh, we got to get him back on the major stage. If, if you're a fan of him, especially, I, I think, you know, what I would like to see out of him is, and he's so candid in his interviews, but I do like watching his interviews on Sundays. And I do see him still trying to say, this is just another day. Like, you know, just another tournament, one swing at a time, like all the all the standard stuff you hear. I, I but clearly, when he's in contention for these major moments right now, it's he's anxious. He, you can feel it, right? He's not a psychopath like Patrick Reed. He has some some humanity to him, and 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 that's why we love. That's why people love him, honestly. But what I what I'd love to to see him say, and it'd be so refreshing if, like, you know, Saturday he's sleeping on a lead of his next major. Hey, I'm nervous. You know, like, yeah, I haven't won one of these in a while. All right. We talked about Tiger. We talked about the the Aussie invasion with J- Jason Day and Adam Scott playing together. We talked about, you know, Rory at 21 years old. What what other Sunday stories do you, did you enjoy out of this? I think a lot of people, you know, kind of forget. I mean, he was a little bit of an obscure winner. But Angel Cabrera, I mean, he was paired with Rory in the final round uh, in as in the final pairing of that day. And, um, you know, I, I mean, on Hills, it's pretty impressive what kind of career he's had. I mean, he's, he's got two PGA tour victories and it's the, it's the 2007 U S open and the 2009 masters. And he's had a pretty good record at Augusta. I mean, he obviously he's got a win there. 2011, he was in the final pairing with Rory. He was four shots back. And then in 2013, he was in the final pairing again with Brant Snedeker and lost in the playoff to Adam Scott. Um, you know, he obviously loves the golf course and he's had some, you know, great finishes there in his career. And, uh, you know, I know he kind of, he was plotting his way, you know, trying to kind of avoid the McElroy train wreck. Um, you know, that as a competitive golfer, obviously, I mean, it's hard to play with somebody who's blowing up, um, to kind of watch that because you know, it's going on and you're trying to, you know, still play your own game. And obviously, you know, you're not, you're not you're playing the golf course. You're not playing against, you are playing against them, but you're not playing against them. But at the same time, it's hard to, you're not really having any momentum. It's, it's fun to play with somebody who's playing well, if you're playing well, because then you're kind of, you're feeding off of that momentum with each other and you're, you know, trying to kind of compete against each other a little bit. Whereas if you're playing well, you're trying to stay in your own game and you're playing with somebody who's just making a mess out there. It's, it's tough to concentrate. And, Angel never, I mean, he didn't do anything, never blew up. I mean, he shot one under, he shot 71, um, was kind of, he was in it once he made the turn going to the back nine, he birdied seven and eight, um, was at nine under and then, or sorry, he was at 10 under going to the back nine. And then, uh, just never really was able to kind of, you know, pick up any momentum. But um, I think, you know, he's obviously somebody that a lot of people forget about that day. Uh, Luke Donald, who was kind of starting to come into his own as a player, um, you know, he, later that year he gets a number one uh, world ranking. from He takes it over from Lee Westwood in the fall there. Uh, you know, he comes out of nowhere, really. I mean, he's five shots back to begin the day um, and just makes an absolute run on the back nine. He doubles 12. And then he goes birdie, par, birdie, birdie, bogey, birdie to finish. Um, he's somebody that obviously, you know, not a lot of people. He's, you know, a decent name. I mean, somebody who's definitely underachieved for the amount of uh, publicity that he gets 
in the game um, for somebody who's number one player in the world. And the guys only had, you know, three or four PGA tour victories. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's just a slew of people during that day that were just in and out. Jeff Ogilvie was seven back to begin the day and he had a tie for the lead standing on the, standing on the 16th hole, birdie 12 through 16. Um, just guys like that, that just kind of came out of the woodworks. And then you have Charles Schwartzel. Yeah. I, I found it interesting that the, I mean, the, the um, telecast had a tougher job with all these people, right? And it could have gone any way. And we all know CBS, they're not known for showing a lot of golf shots. So I thought it was really interesting that we didn't see, I think the it was 35-minute mark was when we saw Charles Schwartzel's first mention and and shot. It was when he, uh, when he chips in on one. Yeah, I mean, he was that pin that day on um... – on Sunday was back left and on the first hole and Charles in the middle of the fairway and he hits just an absolute, like he almost shanks it into the short right into the bushes there. And he said later in his post round press conference that, you know, you could give him a hundred balls there and he might get it up and down three or four times. I mean, he said it was pretty much an impossible chip. I mean, he had to keep it low. He had to run it up the hill. He had to go through about three different parts of the elevation on the green. I mean, he was trying to just get it inside it. 10, 15 feet to give himself a look at par. And it goes in. People weren't even talking about his name. And then he bogeys the fourth hole, and now he just makes a run of pars. He stays from uh, the fifth hole to the 14th hole. He makes all pars. And so he's not really in the mix of it. Adam Scott's got a two-shot lead at that point. He's at 12 under uh, when he gets to his 16th hole. Nobody else is really... You know, there's been a ton of lead changes throughout the day, and Charles Schwarzel's kind of going to the 15th hole. He's two shots back. He's got a chance, but he's got to make a run. Yeah, the 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 unlikelihood. And again, I was sitting there with my wife watching it. She didn't bring him up as a as like a possible winner because that streak of pars, right? Like everything's happening around him, and and she's just not seeing him as the potential winner. One because he's not a noteworthy name, but. Um, yeah, I thought that was uh, I thought that was something. When he holds out for eagle on on three, was that when you thought that he had a chance? Uh, I mean, he's definitely in it now. I mean, now he's now he's the leader. I mean, because Rory had just bogeyed the first hole, and so now he's he's tied for the lead at that point. And um, I think just the you know the hot start. I think that's what helped him so much is because if he, you know, if he's just making pars on those first three holes, he makes his bogey on, on four. Now he's at seven under and now he makes, you know, he makes 10 straight pars from five to 14. So he's not really, you know, he's not in the hunt anymore. Um, but because of those, that hot start that he had, you know, chipping in on one and then holding out on three, um, you know, it, it allowed him to not really have to make any fireworks until the 15th hole. Um, you know, obviously those are things that, you know, he looks back on, I'm sure that probably won him the golf tournament. Um, like everybody says, you know, the, f- the first tee shot on the first hole of the day is just as important as the last putt on the 18th hole. I mean, that's, you know, it, it, the moment might change, but it's a, sh- a stroke is a stroke. And, um, you know, I think those are the things that he definitely has to attribute to his win. I mean, those were two massive shots that probably won him the Masters. But then – you know, he goes to 15 and he birdies 15 through 18. Right, right. I mean, that, that finish is, is unbelievable. Uh, obviously won it 
you know, I think he was also, uh, they mentioned on the telecast, he's 140 pounds. He was like, he was like 2011's Justin Thomas, man. I mean, he was moving it. Like his drive on two all gave him like only 235 in the holes, one of the longest drives of the day. I was, uh, I was kind of shocked at how, how long Charles Schwartzer was. Yeah, he killed. I mean, you look at his golf swing. Him and fellow countryman Louis Ustazen. I mean, they have perfect golf swings. Completely different, uh, fundamentally, but I mean, very you know, technique sound is is right on point. And yeah, I mean, he he murdered the ball. I mean, his whole thing, his entire career has been his ball striking and how how elite it has been uh, for him. And I think that you know his. I don't know, something about those South Africans that they just don't look like a lot of things, you know, bother them. I mean, the way that Ernie, his whole demeanor, Charles and um, and uh, Louis Ustazen are the same way, that they just, Trevor Immelman, another South African, I mean, all those guys really don't have that, like, tense demeanor. They look very calm, very, you know, pleasant in the in crunch time and um obviously that helps you when you know you're trying to win your first major and you're trying to win the biggest tournament in the world but he his swing is so fundamentally correct that i think it even if he was feeling the pressure mentally i think physically there's just not a lot of things that could go wrong with that golf swing yeah yeah there was a graphic after he holed out i think and you know the three names that were at the top were tiger Rory and Charles at, at that point uh, obviously changed, like like you said, nine or eight times. Um, but uh, the graphic said Tiger major championships, Tiger Woods fourteen, Rory McIlroy and Charles zero. Like <laughs> I thought it was such a such a, like a okay, we get it. Yeah, neither of these guys have won, and their names are next to Tigers. Okay, but um, you know the other thing I noticed I had down here is uh, Jason Day, painfully slow. He was walking. He was like backing off shots. I, it was driving me a little nuts that he is such a slow golfer. Um, but uh, but I think it actually trickled down because that whole. I mean, Rory and and uh, Angel are both very quick golfers, right? I mean, Angel we know is Rory yeah. at the time. I'm sure was, and and so they are waiting on every single shot, and yeah. and I and I got to imagine being Rory with. You know, your first major, 21 years old. He obviously nervous. That could not have helped. No, I mean, that's a killer. Having to get to each and every shot that entire day waiting, knowing that you're going to have to wait, thinking about it, it's brutal. And it's kind of like the best of both worlds because if you're playing with somebody slow, then it's not – you're playing with them. So it's not awful. Um, you know it's coming. But Angel is quicker than Rory at that point. So you got two guys who play – you know, if you let them go out by themselves, they'd probably play in two hours. And so you got guys who you got two guys who play blitzingly fast, and then you put them right behind somebody who takes you know three minutes to hit a golf shot, and that's just that's even worse because now your pace of play is completely screwed up. If if he was paired with Jason Day, it might not have been as big of a deal, but because he's waiting on every shot sitting in the fairway watching Jason Day go through his entire routine, it's it's painful. It is. It was. I mean, and you could you could see that Jay Day was also a young guy battling his own mental struggles. Um, but, you know, come on, man. Gotta hit gotta hit the shot. Gotta go. 
where there's another shot that I, I wanted to bring up at this time. So we're still kind of on the front nine. We'll get to the fireworks of the back nine. When Tiger hits his tee shot on six, I know eight was pretty epic as well, but I just got to make note of this. I, I almost stood out of my chair. Like we had seen a couple of shots on the telecast into six guys that are going to the center of the green, giving themselves like the 20 footer. The, the pin is front left on that downhill par three he hits, and we, we talked earlier about his swing and how uh, like aggressive awful it was and awful it was. But it was it was effective, you know. Obviously not on the body, but but man, I mean, he was staking shots. He he used the far right slope of that green with a massive hook. Like when this ball leaves the club face, you think he dead pushed it like uh, over into no man's land, and it had a massive hook, and and. It hits that slope with a ton of spin and goes to eight feet, and he rolls it in for birdie. I, if I was watching that live, I'm sure when I was, I'm like, oh, this dude, he is pulling out the stops now. I mean, we didn't see anybody else see that angle, and I think it's one of the the reason I wrote it down. It's just one of the cool things about Augusta National, you know, knowing that that he could use that slope. Like, there's not another course on the PJ Tour I can think of where there's that many nooks and crannies and, and slopes that are are you can you, you can actually use do you know what i mean yeah no i mean I, the only course that kind of comes to mind that you could do that on is uh the old course of saint andrews i think that's really the only probably the only one and and obviously you know bobby jones building the golf course that was his whole point of starting augusta nationals it was his ode to saint andrews so um you know, I don't think there's any golf course in the world that resembles those two golf courses, but I think they're kind of distant cousins in that respect that you can, there's not only, there's not just one shot that you can hit. I mean, like you said on six there, I mean, most people, if you don't play that golf course enough, I'm sure you're just aiming at the pin. You're not even looking at the slope, but because Tigers play there a million times at that point, he's a four time winner of the tournament. He knows that, you know, if I hit it into that bank, right. 60 feet right of the pin it's going to come back down and it's going to actually leave me in a better position and it's an easier shot he's got you know if you or i just walked up there it was the first time we ever played it we wouldn't even know that that slope was there unless somebody told us yeah yeah and it's, it's one of the cool things watching augusta every every uh weekend year in and year out um getting to the back into the back nine so we got rory's meltdown on 10 but i think right after that and here's I took a little note of this, the leaderboard. I think it was at one time you had Tiger at ten under, Charles Schwartzel at ten under, Angel Cabrera at ten under, Adam Scott at ten under, and and Jason Day at nine under. And then that next putt, he makes it. And I think somebody maybe made a bogey, but Jeff Ogilvy gets the ten under. So like ten under was the number right after going into the heart of Amen's corner for the leaders when you got everybody. And I just, it, that's why it's the adrenaline open because like at that point, I feel like you're just, every shot is a meaningful shot. Yeah. I mean, and, and like you said, I mean, you have six or seven guys who are at 10 under at that point. And I think, you know, everybody was kind of expecting Tiger, I think then to kind of keep his, you know, his pace up. Um, and he just, he just was never able to really, you know, regain his magic that he made on the uh, made on the front nine. I mean, he, you know, Tiger, he made one birdie on the back nine. He shot even par, and and the shot that he hit on fifteen, you know, he hits it to four feet, and he's got a four footer for eagle, and he misses it. I mean, that tell, that just shows you that he's 
you know, he wasn't at that point. He, you know, everything had obviously affected him in his life. I think that was just a sure, you know, point of how he wasn't, you know, the Tiger Bowl. I mean, if that was, you know, three years prior to that, I mean, he would have poured it in the heart. And for him to miss that putt, I think that was so shocking. That kind of led you into what, you know, the years to come were for him and his golf career. Um, but, you know, obviously he doesn't make the run that people thought he was going to on the back nine. And then, um, you know, but then, you know, you have Jason Day and Adam Scott. I mean, they're at that point, Scotty's got a two shot lead and Jason right on top of him, birdie 17 and 18. It looks like sitting in the clubhouse that those might be the two guys that are going to go into a playoff together. Um, and then, you know, but right behind them, Charles kind of making his run. Right. Right. And in this group, this 10 under number, um, there's one name we left off. Very heavy hitter. Big time. Bo Van Pelt. How we forget him, man. He he makes uh, eagle on 15. Or it's the first time we see him, yep. too. So this is like the one guy that you would expect. Like, I, I laughed out loud when they finally brought him on the telecast. I'm like, wait a second. Bo Van Pelt's eight under? Come on. And he, he sticks it on 15, makes eagle. And I love Faraday's call. Faraday's on 15. And Faraday goes, want a ticket to the party? And he goes, Bo Van Pelt. Welcome to 10 Under. It's so good. I love that call. Um, and then, of course, what, what do you think happens to Bo on, on 16? Yeah. Do, you, do you remember? <laughs> he rinses it. No, he, did, he didn't. He didn't rinse it. He pushes. Okay. So he now knows he's got a lead of the Masters. This might be my favorite. This is the stuff I look for. Uh, he pushes it up the right side so he doesn't catch the slope down to the Sunday pin on the left-hand side. He's on the right and it's a hard putt. Like, I've, I've sat next to that green. I know how severe that slope is. And he putts completely off the green. <laughs> he stays in the fringe. He misses the comebacker, obviously. And and I think Faraday had another line. Like, you know, it's a funny game. As quickly as you come into it, you come out of it. Or whoever was on 16, probably Usti, Usterhouse right. or someone. But uh, I, loved, I loved the subtle. It was so small. Just Bo Van Pelt in there for a, a flash pan of a moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the crazy thing about these tournaments, too, is that once, you know, the leader like Rory or, you know, Tiger doesn't make a run, Rory collapses, guys like that, and you have six or seven guys at 10 under, you know, at one number, you know, you start getting people that you <laughs> didn't even know were relevant. I mean, it, I mean, and a lot of it, it's kind of like in 2019 last year. I mean, it was pretty funny how, you know, once Molinari, you know, rinsed it on 12, it was like the floodgates opened. I mean, you had Patrick Cantley, you had Xander Shoffley, you had Dustin Johnson, Brooks, Tony Finau, Ian Poulter. I mean, all these guys all of a sudden were in the mix that, you know, 10 minutes beforehand, you thought Molinari was the clear-cut, you know, winner. And uh, I think that's what's so crazy is that these things – but these things can happen when, you know, you, you have somebody who's running away with it and then all of a sudden they start collapsing. And um, the, also the thing is, is that you kind of have to look at the guy who's got the most um, in those, you know, certain moments, you got to look at the guy who's got the most experience and, you know, assume that he's going to be the one who's going to pull it out. Um, obviously in 2019, Tiger was the guy to do that. But this, you know, the year that we're talking about in 2011, you know, it wasn't, I think, you, at that moment, you probably look at a guy like obviously Tiger or, you know, somebody who won the tournament before like Cabrera or, you know, Adam Scott, who had put himself in that 
you know, position many times, even though he hadn't won a major championship yet. Um, you wouldn't look at somebody like Jason Day or obviously Bo Van Pelt to to step up and, and win that tournament. So, or even Charles Schwartz a little, for that matter. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, he fits that category. The uh, I'll take a, a quick segment on the fashion updates because Bo Van Pelt reminded me of how fantastic our fashion was nine years ago. Um, so compared to like our, our last 98, the pants were still pretty baggy, pretty baggy pants, a lot of room in there, about 50, 50 flat, flat to, uh, to pleats. So pleats start working their way out, I guess, give it another nine years. Pleats will start working their way back in, I'm sure. Um, and, and everyone is wearing the first generation of performance gear. So that means they kind of look like bobsled teams, you know, it's like that really shiny, kind of material that that they had uh i thought that was very uh very noticeable um i rory's sponsor being that uh jamira jamira and and, uh united arab emirates i just thought that was an interesting company to always see on on a guy like him i guess this is before you're a superstar so you just take real estate companies you know and um and the other theme of this day was uh oh metallic embroidery a lot of guys had the the chrome shiny thing on their hat. Nike was big on this at the time, so I thought that was interesting. And uh, the the last two things, the all white. So the all white outfits yeah. were in. Bubba was rocking white belt, white hat, white shoes, yeah. white everything. Luke Donald had a similar look. Uh, Adam Scott being you know uh, kind of like a, a a model at the time. I know. The big, big fans with the ladies. He kind of had like an off-white, all off-white. It was, I thought it was like kind of gross, but um, hey, that's, that's uh, 2011. So the, the other thing, if, if anyone's, you know, binging this week on other masters, the best uh, camera spot to really grasp the golf fashion of the time is when they're watching tee shots on 16 because you get to see everybody behind them. And I think in particular this year, there's the one Yahoo in like a Hawaiian T-shirt with all his Masters badges. If you're watching this, you're you're gonna you're not gonna be able to take your eyes off them. But um, yeah, they're just so classic. I love that that shot because that'll tell you what what the fashion sense of the times were. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of lot of white, a lot of big belt buckles too that you don't really see anymore. Um, I think yes. that was a huge thing in the early 2010s. Absolutely. That was a big one. Uh, I had a question for you on Tiger for his last shot into 18. He appears to grimace. He went at it like he went at every shot all day. But where was he at in his his surgeries? Obviously, the knee portion comes after. So, you know, was that – I'm guessing he was in pain. Yeah, well, you know, 2008, like the U.S. Open, obviously everybody remembers that, you know, he won the tournament on a broken leg. And then the rest of that season he, you know, took off and had to have reconstructive knee surgery uh, on his left knee. And then so he had already, you know, dealt with the knee problems a little bit. And then a lot of people forget that, you know, early on uh, on Friday of that tournament of the 2011 Masters on 17, he actually snap hooked his tee shot on 17 into uh, Ike's tree there before they took it down. And, um, you know, big thing during the rest of that week was that Tiger had to hit a shot off of the pine straw there and his left knee gave out. And, um, you know, it looked like he was kind of limping, uh, walking to his third shot after that, after his second shot, after his approach shot. And, um, so, you know, a lot of, 
the injuries kind of started piling up kind of in the late 2000s form and then you know going into uh going into you know the new decade I th- you know working with Sean Foley I think a lot of uh you know his physical issues started to you know reappear and kind of become a bigger factor in his career than you know they had been uh, when he was a younger guy, I mean, obviously age has something to do with it, but, you know, golf, you don't think of somebody who's, you know, having reconstructive knee surgery. And, um, you know, I think that just shows you, you know, Tiger wanted to, you know, be known as an athlete, not a golfer. And, uh, you know, a lot of his weight training, stuff like that. I think there were a lot of factors that, you know, weighed on him, not just his golf swing. The, uh, the other guy we didn't talk a lot of Jeff Ogilvy. So he would have been a pretty popular yeah. champion for everybody. I mean, I know in our, our group of you know members, people love Ogilvy, and he's doing a lot more podcast work and architecture work. But you know, it's it's cool to go see his career because he had some. He showed up in big moments. Yeah, he did. I mean, he obviously won the 2006 U.S. Open at Wingfoot. Um, you know, he had a lot of you know chances and tournaments, a lot of chances in major championships. He, he kind of solidified himself as a solid player after that. Um, he made a run, obviously, in 2011 at the Masters. I think he's somebody that a lot of people forget about. Um, he was an Australian that, you know, he won he won a major championship before Adam Scott did. I mean, seven years before Adam won his first, Ogilvy had already won the U.S. Open. Um, I think he's somebody that was always kind of overlooked, um, always – kind of had a little bit of an underdog mentality, you know, very just underrated player. I mean, um, somebody that was always, he was just never rattled. Um, he was able to, you know, kind of hold his composure during that entire back nine of the U S open in 2006, when everybody was, you know, around him was collapsing, you know, Mickelson had his epic collapse there on 18, the 72nd hole at wing foot. Um, you know, and Ogilvy was able to, you know, he chipped in on 17 for par. He was able to make a uh, miraculous par on 18 to finish his round. He was just somebody that was kind of, you know, keeping his head above water while everybody else was drowning. And um, I feel like, you know, he's he's always kind of had that kind of career where he's always, um, when people, you know, left him for dead, he's always kind of risen again. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely resilient dude. Uh, let's get back to Charles finish. So you, you, you teased it in the beginning and, and what an epic, you know, close to the round, but, uh, that birdie on 16, I feel, I feel like everybody has to birdie 16 to win the masters, right? Can you think of an occasion where people don't because it seems to always happen? Yeah. I mean, a lot, you know, obviously, you know, last year Tiger did, um, that pin is pretty, pretty easy. I mean, if you, are able to catch that slope on the right, it's going to, it's going to funnel back down to the left there. And, um, you know, I think he, you know, he hits a great shot in there. He's able to make a good putt. And then, um, you know, and then I think after birding 15, you know, 17 and 18 are not birdie holes. I mean, in that stretch, I mean, 18, they have a good pin, but you have to hit a good tee shot. 17, they always kind of have that middle right front pin on Sunday there it's tough because you gotta be, you gotta be below the hole enough to obviously, you know, not hit the ball in the bunker, but there's also a slope there front, right. That'll take you all the way down a pitching area. And so you kind of have to really hit your number, even though it's a nine iron pitching wedge second shot, it's not, not an easy 
whole location to get to because if you're past that pin you risk going long which is just a treacherous up and down or you got a 15 20 footer from birdie that's straight down the hill breaking left to right so we've seen players in the past make that putt i mean jack nicholas in 86 made it mark O'Meara in 98 made it but it's not a it's not a putt that you know is common to to make especially you know during crunch time and um you know for charlotte to make birdie on 17 there and then go to 18 you know knowing that he had a one-shot lead um which is probably the toughest hole in golf to play knowing that you know if you make bogey you're you're gonna if you make bogey you're in a playoff basically you know feeling like you lost the tournament and you know you, you got to step up and hit two good shots to, you know, solidify your legacy. And for him to, I mean, he played the whole like a champ. I mean, he hits three wood, eight iron to, you know, 15 feet and then makes a putt. I mean, it, it was like he it was just a walk in the park, those last four holes for him. It was like he was just playing by himself. Yeah, the the one thing I always think about with 18 is, like these guys are professional athletes. They're in good shape. It is a very severely uphill hole that yeah. you don't really get to see from TV. So adrenaline's pumping, you know, you're marching up that hill, no problem. But the, and this is true of Augusta throughout, is that you very rarely get an, uh, an even lie. Um, but if you need to put a shot close, I know for me personally, the last lie I want, like I, I'd be okay with a ball, you know, slightly uh, below my feet, slightly above my feet, even downhill lies, I, I'd feel uh, okay with an uphill lie is is a bit i i feel like it's you got to get to your left side and and when nerves are on the line like i think it's very understated how challenging that uh second approach shot is for somebody who's leading the tournament and um schwartz will just freaking hit an, uh, a great shot and then he holds the putt which is like what a way to cap off you know your 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 defining moment of your career Right. I think, you know, at that point, too, I mean, after hitting two shots like that, you want to make the putt. I mean, you know you're going to win the tournament, but you just want to put an extra, you know, capitalize on it. I mean, you don't want to – it would kind of suck to, you know, just lag it down there. I mean, you kind of want to make it after hitting two shots like that. So uh, he's, the, he's the champion. They go into to Butler cabin. cabin. I, I took two notes here for their, their post-conference uh, chat with or post-tournament chat with, with old Nancy. Um, that the first person that Charles mentions in his acceptance or his uh, about his day is KJ Choi, who we didn't talk a whole lot about, but he was paired with the KJ oh. boy, Choi boy. Uh, and he said he goes watching KJ's tempo all day, help me with mine. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think just, and I think what Cheryl meant too, not even just like his swing, I think just like the way that KJ carries himself. He's so easygoing and just very, you just can't tell his emotions. And um, you know, he's somebody too that got the 10 under there and kind of faltered quickly. But um, he's somebody also that has pretty solid track record at Augusta, somebody that's always kind of showed up on leaderboards there. Um, in 2004, 2010, and then 2011, he's always had, you know, good runs on Sunday, it seems like. And, uh, he's somebody that, you know, he's, he's just, he's a plotter. He's somebody that he's always, he's just a grinder. I think he's probably like a perfect guy for Charles to play with in that, in that sense, because he wasn't somebody who was, um, you know, he didn't have like a tiger mindset. He didn't have, yeah, I'm sure KJ talked to him a little bit. Um, he it was just probably a perfect pairing for him when somebody's going for their first major like that. 
So what you're saying is if, if Rory would have been paired with KJ, he would have a Masters under, under his belt, but instead he was paired with Angel Cabrera and having to secondhand smoke uh, all his, all his uh, Marlboros for the day, and, and we had the meltdown that we witnessed. Yeah, I mean, you know, you never know. I mean, I think pairings are a big part of it. Um, you know, you can't say, you know, one way or the other, but I'm sure, you know, the language barrier too, maybe a little bit. I mean, Angel doesn't speak English at all. Um, so I'm sure that's tough. I mean, KJ does speak English. Um, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, that's a difference, but, you know, hey, I mean, you yeah, never know. When you're married, yeah. Uh, and then the last. The last person that we probably haven't met. Who's sitting next to, to Rory is Loam. Oh, I'm sorry, not Rory. Who's sitting next to Charles as Loam? Hideki Masayama. Yeah, that was that was cool. And I thought it was also fun to watch the... Again, I think Butler Cabin is still very awkward. I know it's a, a time-tested uh, tradition, and, and Nance is a complete professional. I just think the whole setting of you know such an epic moment and then quietly sitting in this nice little row to to talk with our green jackets is just it's it's just weird to me and it always will be but uh Hideki has his translator with him and my favorite part of that is and, and Hideki says beautiful things because there was just the uh, earthquake in Japan and he was going home to volunteer after you know this win I thought that was all really really special um, but his his translator who is sitting next to Jim Nance so he got on the one side uh who, who put oh, phil put the jacket on right phil was 2010 yeah okay so you yeah. got phil you got Charles, and you got hideki and on the other side you got jim nance the chairman of augusta national and uh the interpreter and so they ask hideki the questions the interpreter answers everything but then you can see the interpreter looking around the room like do i leave do i he just starts talking to the masters champion he's like what am i doing here why am i on national television like i i I, should i go should i should i exit stage left uh so i love that i love that moment and uh and yeah i mean that's the start of of the world stage for hideki matsuyama yeah, I mean, a lot of people forget that too. That he played the next year uh, as well. He was he won the Asian Amateur again, so he went back to Augusta. And then Patrick Cantley was actually the low am in 2012. But uh, yeah, I mean, Hideki play, was able to play the Masters twice as an amateur, and then obviously turned pro after that. And you know, has done great things. I mean, I think he's somebody that could, uh, you know, he's had a good track record there so far as a professional. I feel like he's somebody that could definitely um, have a green jacket in his future. Yeah. Well, that one was fun, man. Uh, I hope people enjoy the added info on 2011 Masters. They enjoy watching some golf this weekend. And uh, as always, PJ, we love having you on. What, uh, wh- where are you headed next with this whole pandemic? Are you, are you uh, kind of on the sidelines, obviously, with the golf season taking a hiatus? Yeah, I mean, nothing really <laughs> pressing right now. I mean, it's pretty just kind of sitting by my phone waiting for updates. Uh, you know, we just right now, I mean, you know, every the whole sports world is shut down. So just kind of waiting to see uh, what's going to happen next. And, um, you know, hopefully still be able to play some golf if uh, the courses don't shut down. Yeah. Well, we, we look forward to playing with you, man. Hopefully we get together here sooner than later in the great outdoors for some fresh air because I know we're all feeling it being cooped up. It ain't it ain't fun. <laughs> No, it's definitely not. Thanks, Matt. All right, thanks, Barry.